Welcome back to the Knife at the Gunfight. Happy New Year and welcome to 2022. This is Simon Fitzgerald and uh, it's been a while since I released an episode of Knife at the Gunfight. Here in New York we are again dealing with another wave of COVID patients in the hospital and between that and my kids daycare shutting down from a COVID outbreak among other things. I've been busy, but I wanted to bring to you this year uh, a series of interviews with the force behind the Baltimore ceasefire movement, a ceasefire series of interviews, starting with uh, one of the co-founders of the Baltimore ceasefire movement, Lee Treescant. Now, importantly, uh, we recorded this interview after the November ceasefire, and like many other cities, Baltimore has been dealing with a wave of violence since the start of the uh, COVID outbreak in 2020 that has been admittedly unrelenting. And this interview is about a movement against violence in that context. Uh, Importantly, this interview has been sitting around for a couple of weeks, and unfortunately, it already feels dated. This interview was recorded just after the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse, and the brutal murder of Memphis rapper Young Dolph. But before the conclusion of the trial of the killers of Ahmaud Arbery, importantly before the killing of Baltimore native and police officer Kiana Holy in the South Baltimore neighborhood of Curtis Bay. So our failure to mention those facts have to do with the timing of the interview rather than any other reason. That being said, I think it's an important interview and I think it's going to be a part of an important series so thank you for listening and stay tuned. We was down for so long, didn't have no choice but to go up. This call is now being recorded. Welcome back to the Knife at the Gunfight. I'm here with one of the founding members of the Baltimore Ceasefire Movement, Latrice Gant. First of all, Latrice, am I pronouncing that correctly? It's Lee Trees. Lee Trees. Uh-huh. <laughs> You've been letting me slide for four years. I've um, been letting people slide for 45 years. I just started reinforcing the pronunciation of my name about a year and a half ago. So it's right. not you. It is. It was actually me. All right. Well, Lee Trees Gant, how are you doing? I'm well, all things considering. Thank you for asking. Now, people listening probably know, but the Baltimore Ceasefire Movement is a movement in the city to uh, celebrate life and end violence and uh, organizes ceasefire weekends to one weekend at a time work to end violence. And I want to get that uh, into that more in our conversation. Now, before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit more about you. Uh, you also go by the stage name LNG, is that right? Yes, that is correct. And you are also now the deputy, the director of the Baltimore Community Mediation Center, right? That is correct also, yes. (laughs) So So congratulations. I mostly know about the Baltimore Community Mediation Center as a focus from which the Baltimore ceasefire movement has grown. Uh, So I know you'll be up to important work uh, from there in the future. So definitely congratulations. Yes, thank you. So congratulations. I mostly know about the Baltimore Community Mediation Center as a focus from which the Baltimore ceasefire movement has grown. 
so I know you'll be up to important work uh, from there in the future. So definitely congratulations. When I met you in 2017, I was a fellow of trauma and critical care at Johns Hopkins Hospital, uh, where you worked as well on the medical campus. And I've interviewed both you and Erica Bridgeford, uh, founders of the Baltimore Sea Fire Movement, about the start of that movement. But before we get into where that movement is today, anything that you would like to say uh, from where we stand looking back at the beginning of that movement? Yeah, so in the beginning, um, the idea to call quarterly ceasefires was um, something that was unheard of in Baltimore City, generally speaking. Um, And we weren't the first ceasefire movement, um, and we weren't, it wasn't the first time that the city itself called a ceasefire. There was actually a government ceasefire program um, um, under one of the previous mayors, and that had some effect, but, you know, when there's a change in the guards and a change in leadership, sometimes, um, unfortunately, the the programs that they institute leave with them. And so the city saw some um, movement in the right direction with respect to ending um, murder via gun violence. And then, you know, guards changed. Um, things in the city started happening um and the i think the freddie gray um murder was a tipping point for a lot of people um because we saw things happening around the country but i don't think that anybody in baltimore would have been able to predict that the uprising that happened that was happening across the country was going to happen in baltimore and so when that happened, there were movements that were already ongoing, um, some very effective movements that were ongoing. And getting the city to galvanize around the idea that murder is not okay has been a challenge um, because it's part of the culture and it's part of our identity here in Baltimore. Some people have nicknamed the city Bodymore Murderland. Um, and people wear that proudly. I think the thing for me, though, that is is misconstrued about the narrative is that yeah, there, there's a there's a, a certain amount of grit in Baltimore City. There's a certain amount of toughness in Baltimore City. There are um, um, boundaries that people absolutely cannot cross without some type of repercussion um, in Baltimore, but that somehow, some way, we lost our ability to manage conflicts um, and to figure out how to do that verbally without violence. Um, And so because violence is misunderstood as power, we took that narrative about who we are as a community, who we are as a people, and immediately connected it to violence instead of using the power of the tongue and the power of language to manage our conflicts. I don't know that a lot of people respect the ability to resolve conflict without violence because in this country, violence has been the thing that has been celebrated. Um, and for the, the ceasefire movement specifically, we have, you know, nipped away 
at that, so to speak, in the psyche of some people. I've seen it on social media. I've seen it in my real life where um, – and and it's a it's in a joking kind of way, but not really, where people are like, Okay, you know, such and such is on my nerves, but it's it's Baltimore Peace Challenge and they'll just say it as a a reflex to thinking about, okay, I'm not gonna do what I would would have normally done in this particular situation. I'm gonna take the Baltimore Peace Challenge and I'm gonna figure out something different. So that's been one of the probably more significant shifts in the way that I've seen people deal with conflict um, with respect to the inception of the ceasefire. Um, when we first started, people thought that it was a really dumb and crazy idea. I understand why people thought that way. And at the same time, we've watched the support grow. We've watched people become less numb and more devastated when we lose community members, um, specifically during ceasefire weekends because they're paying attention mm -hmm. and people have been empowered to create their own life-affirming events and celebrate Baltimore the way that they see fit. And if I can respond to what I've seen with the Baltimore ceasefire movement, and now I've always felt like it should be more people that show up uh, every time the ceasefire calls out the city. Uh, that being said, the power and the emotional intelligence of, of everybody that moves with the Baltimore ceasefire movement has always impressed me. And I think that's why it's resonated with the city so much in the way that you're describing. And that's what we've seen in the popular media and the social media and in just how people uh, talk and communicate with one another. And I always think of, I think it was February of 2018, in which a, the ceasefire weekend either coincided with or, you know, really kicked off, depending on how you look at it, at least 10 days where nobody was killed and a stretch where shootings were way down. And I, that always resonates with me as an expression of the power of this movement. I agree. That, that is um, correct. Um, the... During the August 27th ceasefire movement, um, the very first person that we lost was Lamontre Tynes. And the February 18th, I'm sorry, the February 2018 ceasefire, the first day of that ceasefire was his birthday. And so there's a lot of spirituality and um, synchronicity in the movement. And so we believe that um, Lamontre had his hand in helping to amplify the energy in Baltimore City to help to produce. That was the longest time that we had gone since 2014. And so um, those are the kinds of things. And that particular weekend, I think, really got people to pay attention to the fact that, okay, I, you know, like I said, people thought that it was a crazy thing, and some people thought that it was absolutely insane. But we watched people go from that to people actually counting up the days with us where we were like, okay, it's, it's been 72 hours. We did it, y'all. Okay, four days in. Okay, five days in. And people really seeing, okay, I can do something different. Um, and that was just, that was just amazing. That was an amazing time, um, early, earlier in the movement. And I remember, I think it was a New York Times produced radio series uh, about 
Baltimore. That time that interviewed uh, some like kids on the corner uh, that were talking about that moment and that stretch without any murders. And they didn't mention the Baltimore ceasefire movement, but they could tell, you know, they saw us. They saw the power of that moment. Yeah. Um, and you and I uh, were co-authors along with the Baltimore researcher Peter Phelan that showed, you know, not only spiritually but statistically shootings were down 50% during those quarterly ceasefire weekends compared to the rest of the year. And so that February 2018 weekend was part of a statistically significant movement that saw killings decrease in response to the Baltimore ceasefire. Exactly. Exactly. And in any case, around the country since 2020, for reasons that I don't think are entirely understood, but certainly have to do with the pandemic and all of the consequences of that, violence around the country has certainly increased since then. And initially in Baltimore, the city weathered that trend relatively well in terms of violence, but... The second half of 2020 on into 2021 has seen increasing levels of violence uh, into the most recent uh, ceasefire weekend, which I believe saw uh, five people uh, murdered during the ceasefire weekend, which may not be entirely abnormal for a typical weekend in Baltimore, but has been the most ever seen during a ceasefire weekend in Baltimore. Is that right? There was a... Um, It was the first. um, The second, I believe, um, was May 2019. Um, But I have to, I would have, I would have to look to check. We actually lost Mm -hmm. four um, people during a previous ceasefire weekend. That particular weekend was pretty devastating um, because the people who we lost seemed like very random victims of violence. So there was a delivery um, driver who was killed. Um, You're talking and, about 2019. Right, right, yeah. There was a delivery mm-hmm. driver that was killed. Um, and that particular weekend, like, knocked the wind out of all of us um, because it seemed like things were going very well. And one of the things that I've learned in doing this work um, is that there are going to be ebbs and flows. There's going to be, um, you know, you take two steps forward and it seems like the system is making you take three steps backwards. Um, And it's devastating. Um, It's devastating. It's heartbreaking. It is, and it wears us down um, in a way that I don't know that people can I don't know that, in a way, I don't know that people can understand um, because we have to go into the spaces where these Mm -hmm. people have lost their life in real time. Um, When the delivery driver, when he was killed, we went there almost immediately after, and his blood was still on the ground. And um, so we could see the devastation that happened in that space. Um, November 2021, was particularly disheartening for me because, and I'm not exactly sure what it was about the the older gentleman 
that lost his life. I later found out some details, and it was a conflict that escalated out of control that resulted in him being shot and killed. And I've been saying to people since the inception of ceasefire that Baltimore does not have um, – I mean, we have a drug problem, which translates into a pain management problem. And what we have is an inability to manage conflict without violence. Conflict is it's it's inevitable. You know, if you're dealing with people authentically, you are bound to have conflict. The idea that we have to annihilate the object of our conflict, like that is the part that, to me, needs to be nursed and addressed almost immediately um, because this idea that if you and I have a beef, regardless of what the beef is about, if we have a beef, that automatically means that you need to die. There's something very, very, very wrong with that. And a lot of people, that's like, that's how they feel on the inside. Yeah, there's a lot to say on that, and I'm no expert, but I've always thought that people who are taught not to value their own lives project that feeling onto others and have a hard time valuing the lives of others. Absolutely. And part of what's always resonated with me about the Baltimore Ceasefire Movement and its leadership is how uh, the movement's analysis has always recognized how uh, violence is the result of policy choices. You know, it, it's on purpose. The same places that um, are devastated by violence are the same geographical areas and the same communities that are affected by lead poisoning uh, that have seen a systematic divestment in every kind of infrastructure besides the infrastructure of policing and state violence. Right, the same kind of analysis that... Um Lawrence Brown has has uh, offered in terms of the idea of the of the white owl and the black butterfly, where where yep. uh, divestment has been chosen, where um, lead poisoning happens, uh, where there's no investment in infrastructure and transit. Uh, in yep. schools, this is the same place we see um, we see violence. But now, if I could circle back, there are certain cases that really resonate with us. I think one thing you mentioned about. Uh, 2019, the the delivery dri- delivery driver who was killed in May of 2019. If I'm remembering correctly, he was from Syria, I believe. Yeah. And there was something about him fleeing violence in Syria to fall victim to violence in Baltimore that really hurt. Yeah. In a way that was very local, but also global. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, you mentioned one case. I think the this last weekend. Or uh, this last, uh, you know, this last month, some of the cases that have really been hurting is that there was a, a gentleman, Carlos Smith, who was killed, and his family was organizing a vigil. And before we could even execute that, his sister was killed. And just to see that kind of violence in one family, um, right, right. And, but before we even have a chance to organize, you know, our own energies in, in a positive direction, I think is, like you said, not to knock the wind out of you. Um, and it was also, I think, not during the weekend, but since then, a 13-year-old who was killed in front of a rec center. Yeah. Uh, uh, Malia T- uh, Turner. So, you know, and, and 
and like I said, these things, it's at once to me hyper local, a Baltimore problem, but also it's resonating uh, nationally, if not internationally. Violence is up all around the country. Uh, it's a problem here where I'm working in New York and Philadelphia, I know, and, and uh, Chicago and, and all over the country. And we also just saw the Kyle Rittenhouse trial that seemed, you know, in a very public way with, you know, in a government uh, forum absolved of responsibility mm-hmm. uh, of a young man, the consequences of his armed belligerence. Right. Um, so, so then what, you know, and, and, and I, I wanted to have this conversation and not, not to, to, uh, beat each other down or to, or to feel bad about it, but to, how do we confront this moment, um, which is at once very painful and has a very, very kind of, uh, a, a great challenge in front of us, both locally in Baltimore and then also around the country. So the, for me, um, and this is, <clears throat> not this is not me speaking for the movement this is me speaking just as a as a human being um being willing to face <clears throat> the very real origins of all of this um and and really getting at the root causes of violence in a way that is both um honest and authentic without dehumanizing the systems and the people who have dehumanized others. Um, that for me, that is one of the ways that we could, you know, begin the dialogue because in my community, the people in my community think that they are the reason, that they are the cause, that they are why our communities look the way that they do, and out of and that's out of context. So, like, really being courageous enough to look at the roots and to put things into perspective in a way that people start to see. Okay, now I understand why things are the way that they are. Now I understand. I was having a conversation with somebody the other other day, and I was telling them the, the neighborhood that I grew up in, we didn't have a supermarket. And I lived there the first 13 years of my life. The supermarket was in the next neighborhood over, and that was normal for me. I didn't think that neighborhood, all neighborhoods were supposed to have a supermarket. The abnormality of that and the abnormality of, you know, liquor stores on every corner, um, you know, instead of having a grocery store that gives you access to fresh fruits and vegetables and healthy foods, you have corner stores. And the corner stores are where you go to get your bread. It's where you go to get, you know, your, your if you need Ajax to clean your tub. I guess, and, and so, and because those things have been normalized in, um, black, brown, and poor communities, we internalize all of that instead of realizing that, yeah, we're living in it and in, in some ways perpetuating it, but we didn't create it. And I feel like once, because I can say for myself, like once I learned and was able to put things into context, it actually humanized me 
and it made me be able to humanize my people. And 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 I I look at them and I don't instead of saying what's wrong with them, I can really ask the question what happened to them. That right there would be one of the solutions that I would suggest um and it would hold people accountable and not like I'm not trying to hold people to fire, but I do want people to be honest about why things are the way that they are. Because as long as there is this disingenuous narrative, as long as there is this dishonesty about how things came to be, we're always going to be running around, from my perspective, in circles, blaming each other for things that are happening when we've been puppeteered more than anything else without, you know, we don't, we don't know that that's what's happening. So that for me, that would be one of the solutions to opening the door to healing the community. Um, I was in that same conversation where I was talking about um, my the, the neighborhood that I grew up in. In elementary school, most black, brown, white people learn, the first thing that they learn about black people is that we were slaves. We don't learn about history, like African history and all of those things, until we are either in, if you go to a good middle school, middle school, if you go to a decent high school, high school, but a lot of people don't learn about that until they get to college. So if all you learn about yourself, if all you know about yourself is that you were an enslaved person, what, like, what could you possibly aspire to be? And I don't know which one of our elders it was that said it, but one of them said, if you believe that you were born a slave, then the best thing that you could be in your mind is a good slave. So, like, I really want us to be honest about how all of this stuff started, how it came to be, to stop telling stories in the middle of the story and, and, and really – unpack what has happened um, because there's healing for everybody in those conversations if we're willing to be honest and authentic. And, um, you know, I, I think the, uh, the, the ceasefire movement, uh, what I've, another thing that I've sort of been impressed with how it's moved and that it's, it's, you know, uh, been open to relationships with, healing relationships with all type of people, you know, people on the streets and on the corner, as well as, you know, people in the police department that, that um approach the movement with respect and 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 uh and interact in that way. You know, there's been a, a relationship with um with uh now our current mayor Brandon Scott since, you know, since he was maybe a city councilman. But at the yep. same time not wait not waiting for anybody to um, to do anything for us, recognizing the limitations of that. And, you know, it's, Baltimore has really lacked for, I think, effective leadership, um, all the way up. I think, you know, um, I, I went to, uh, school with, with Nick Mosby, who's the city council president, and he's now married to our DA, and I think there's a profound, uh, conflicts of interest there, and there's a lot of problems with the way they've both been moving. And even Brandon Scott as a mayor, I think, has been a bit disappointing, but it's maybe the limitations of his office. Um, and at the same time, our um, 
you know, our, our, our um, governor has, has also, you know, been, been quick to, to mention violence when uh, he can parlay it for uh, political gain, especially if he can uh, speak in some way that, that, uh, that uh, gets him um, support within the sort of the FOP crowd. But at the same time, when it comes to being present in the city or investing in the city, you know, I'm still, my feelings are still hurt that one of the first things he did as governor was uh, remove, uh, take out uh, something like a billion and a half dollars from investment in a um, subway system that by now would have had two, uh, several stops along um, Edmondson Avenue and like two stops right. in Edmondson Village to get in and out of the city or wherever for for people that live in that neighborhood. Um, so, you know, that's just confronting kind of a lack of leadership and, and being willing to take it on ourselves. And, and I think um, one of the things that you mentioned was being present in the, in the spaces where people killed is, is a way of, of really literally in, in, in physical time and space confronting that violence, um, uh, even just by being present, which I think is always about half of life, is just showing up and being present. Um, um, and sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, one of the things I was going to say is the language that has often been used to describe that, especially by Erica Bridgeford, but by others is, and you you touched on it a little bit with the spirituality of the movement, and she, the language she uses is spiritual warfare. Mm-hmm. I've always I've always struggled with that language, with that metaphor. I grew up in in uh, an anti-war uh, kind of family, kind of a radically almost pacifist family. Okay. Um, that being said, the image of the warrior, I think, is 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 correct and appropriate. There's a certain um, courage and commitment in the face of life-threatening adversity, which is really what we're talking about, and and uh, right. being able to deal with 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 um, the pain and frustration uh, and the danger of um, of confronting violence in the city. So. Uh, I haven't found a better term yet, so I'm I'm uh, I'm resigning mm-hmm. myself for now to to this idea of the spiritual warfare. And, okay. Um, as a discipline of moving forward, you know, this is the way. Yeah, it is. Um, so under so for, so for me, um, the the energy around um, ideas of dominance. Um, by white skinned people, males particularly, um, and the 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 wearing down of the mental, emotional well being of people who are not white skinned males. Um, that's where the the spiritual warfare for me comes into play because when I when you know you turn on something as that you think is as innocent as a television show, but like I now that I'm now that I've I've been engaged in this kind of work and 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 really have been doing it intimately, the veil has been lifted from my eyes and so I'm able to see things differently than how they are presented. So. That and and I'm I'm trying to make the connection. So there's a there's the material world where you know we see something and we think that it is what it what we're looking at, 
and then there is this veil that needs to be lifted so that we can recognize what we actually are seeing. Um, and for me, that is one of the elements of the spiritual warfare. We think that we are fighting something. We think that we are battling something. But when we actually look at what it is that we're battling, that's not it at all. So like the example that I used about um, or the, the thing that you said about if you if you don't value yourself, it is very easy for you to devalue people who look exactly like you. That is the veil. And when you lift that veil, what you see is, oh, no, you've been taught to devalue yourself. It has been intentional that this this idea that you aren't worth anything, like all of that has been strategically um, um, inserted into your psyche. You know, it's everywhere you go. And... That is, for some people, they might not consider that to be spiritual warfare, but it is for me the way that I look at it because the spiritual realm is different than the material realm. The material realm is, for me, what you what I can actually put my hands on, but what I can put my hands on all the time is not, that's not always what's going on. Um, I don't know how other people define spiritual warfare. I know that for some people it is the, you know, good versus evil, light versus dark. I have issues with the terminology for those things. Um, I would say healthy versus toxic probably is what I would lean to more than anything else. Um, but it's a whole lot deeper than, you know, black people just killing themselves because, you know, because they fighting over whatever. I guess way deeper than that. And it's intentional, it's strategic, it is it's sinister and it's toxic in ways that the to me the average person just doesn't understand. Not because they don't have capacity to understand, but we're all walking around with veils on. And until the veil is lifted you don't really know what it is that you're looking at. Anything else that uh, that you wanna that you wanna add, or that you know, looking back in four years of ceasefire, that you maybe think of differently or see differently, or something you see moving forward, how you how you uh, aspire to move. So now that I no longer work for Hopkins, and now that I work for Baltimore Community Mediation Center, I can actually spend my days and my time prioritizing. I prioritizing the work which is different, you know, when I'm, you know, if I'm working seven to four, you know, my days are dedicated to, you know, the the thing, the, the entity that pays my bills. And now I have more free time. I have way more flexibility. I'm able to move and connect with people differently. And so I I have an expectation for myself that over the next three years, three to five years that the visibility of the Baltimore Community Mediation Center will match that of Baltimore ceasefire, if not um, surpass it. And then the the culture of Baltimore City will shift more to, okay, I have a conflict with a person. Let me go talk to somebody about it. Let me go find these actually world-class trained mediators and use this um this this 
um, service that is of no cost to me to resolve my conflict with a person so that we can remain healthy, alive, and free. And that's, that's, those are my goals for the next three to five years and what I want to see for Baltimore and Baltimore Seaside 365 and Baltimore Community Mediation Center will be the platforms that I use to um, achieve those goals. Excellent. And uh, I, I really like it's resonating with me and I have to sit with it, <clears throat> this concept, this idea you have about understanding as the ability to mediate conflict as part of the, the strength and the, and the grit and the toughness um, mm-hmm. of a culture that doesn't necessarily resort to violence when it's not necessary to resolve uh, That's conflict. Right. That's right. Um, and and one, one of the last things I wanted to say is, uh, you know, I, I really respect the, the, the squad, the leadership of the Baltimore Ceasefire Movement, how, how much um, you guys respect yourselves and your power and, and the emotional intelligence involved, and also the wisdom to uh, invite other people in uh, and vet them and, and have a whole other tier of kind of leadership in the Baltimore Ceasefire Movement and, and the ambassadors uh, and all of them that I've met um, move with a, with a similar kind of strength and wisdom um, so uh, anyone that, that is interested in, in the work, I encourage you to show up, listen, and uh, and reach out and, and, you know, be willing to step into that space as an ambassador if it resonates with you. Um, and I think there's a lot of potential, and it's a difficult moment right now. Um, but I am grateful for the infrastructure, even just the spiritual infrastructure that the ceasefire movement has uh, provided to Baltimore, um, and I'm hoping that we can – uh, leverage that to, to confront this moment. Thank you, Simon. Uh, and, you know, after a little bit of a difficult conversation, uh, I'm hoping for a little bit of levity. Um, <laughs> I always like to ask ask people for that I interview for a recommendation. Um, it used to always be a, a book or, or music, but any uh, artistic expression uh, or literary work right now that, that you can get excited about. Um, when I would do sacred space rituals, I would always listen to Optimistic by Sounds of Blackness. I'm not exactly sure why I was led to listen to that. You know, obviously the the message in the song is a positive message, but it's it's, it's just something about it. And I can't explain. Sometimes when I'm in my house and I'm listening to it, it'll get to certain parts of the song and I'll just start crying. I have absolutely no idea about why, but I encourage people, um, if that's one thing that I would be willing to share with people, um, because the message in the song is, is pretty powerful. So listen to um, Optimistic by Sounds of Blackness and um, just let it sit in your spirit. Let it let it resonate with you and let the, let the message cover you, especially in times when um, – when you feel like you're you're either alone or by yourself. All right. Well, thank you, Retreat. Thank you for your time and for your work. And um, we look forward to it. And we're going to close out with a clip of that Sounds of Black. Thank you. The blackness. Keep it, keep on. Thanks again for joining us for this interview of Baltimore Ceasefire co-founder Lee Trees Gant. The music that you heard on this episode includes Hold Up, Hold Up, Hold Up by the late Young Dolph, uh, whose 
murder in front of a popular Memphis bakery was devastating to a lot of people in more ways than one. And I can't imagine the effect on the community institution of the bakery itself. And lastly, that recommendation from Lee Treese herself, Optimistic by Sounds of Blackness. Thanks again for joining us, and hopefully this is the beginning of a series of these ceasefire interviews, this ceasefire series. So, take care, Happy New Year, and stay tuned.